All right, guys, one more time with me as we go to the Lord together to ask God's blessing on the preaching of his word. Let's pray. Father, we pray now that you would make your power perfect in our weakness in preaching and hearing your word. Watch over your word now to perform it here for Jesus' sake. Amen. It's often hard for us to see how it can be good to be away from those we love. Kids don't always see why dads have to go to work. Parents miss their grown children. Close friends resent long absences. There's a phrase we use to comfort each other over these distances. I'll be with you in spirit. And we know it's kind of questionable a little new agey, kind of Eastern mystic. It sounds vaguely like something Jesus might say. It makes us feel good. Jesus did, in fact, say something about being with us by his Spirit, but when he said it, he meant way more than what we could ever mean. If you would turn with me to John 16, 5. John 16, 5. We'll see Jesus preparing his disciples for his death, resurrection, ascension, and absence until the second advent. He encourages them and us, that Jesus' physical absence from us is best for now. And that for three reasons. So we'll see three reasons in John 16, 5 to 33, that Jesus' physical absence from us is best for us for now. Follow along with me as I read. John 16, starting in verse 5. But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. A little while and you will see me no longer. And again a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again a little while and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish. For joy that a human being has been born into the world. 
So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. And that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. And that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father, and I have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using a figure of speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus' physical absence from us is best for us for now, for three reasons. First, in John 16, 5-15, Jesus' departure is what gives us his spirit. Jesus' departure is what gives us his spirit. What's the connection, though, between Jesus' resurrection and ascension on the one hand and the distribution of the spirit on the other? Why does Jesus have to go away in order for the Spirit to come? The reason is that the outpouring of the Spirit is one of the great gifts Jesus purchased with his death and resurrection. God accepted Jesus' death by raising him from the dead and accepting him back to glory. God's justice being satisfied in that way, God's favor can now be conferred on us in the outpouring of his best gift, his own spirit. This is how Stephen Charnock put it, the Puritan pastor from the 1600s. He said, This choicest benefit we receive from God could not have come unless the justice of God had been satisfied and his favor procured by a sufficient sacrifice. The death of Christ was so perfect in obedience that it gained all the love and affection of his Father as a reward. The pleasure God took in it was so great that because of it, God would give to Christ and his people whatever was most dear and precious to him. What Christ purchased by his death, the outpouring of the Spirit, he took possession of at his entrance to heaven. Long story short, The Spirit's presence is worth Jesus' absence. That's how good and valuable a gift the Holy Spirit is. The first disciples did not realize this, and neither do we. They were sad when Jesus told them he was going away, not realizing that he would send an even better kind of comfort 
than they had in his physical presence, his spirit. Because while the embodied Christ could only be with them externally, his spirit would take up residence within them. Christian, don't underestimate this gift. The Spirit gives understanding of Scripture, closeness of relationship with God, unity in the church, effectiveness in ministry. The Spirit's presence is so great that it is worth Jesus' absence. And Jesus said that. Now, this also touches on our theology of worship, both gathered worship in general and the Lord's Supper in particular. Worship is in spirit and truth. Spirit's already with us. We trust that by faith. That's why we don't have to whip you up with emotionally manipulative music. The Spirit's already here. It's why we don't give you a whole lot to see up front in decorations or in a mod black curtain with cool blue uplighting or a projection screen which, with religious art and calligraphically written out phrases. You don't need that. You already have the Spirit if you're a Christian. The Spirit's instrument is God's word, both in the law to convict and in the gospel to comfort. So we fill our services with God's word in order that the Spirit has his tools at his disposal to do his work in his way. Now maybe that seems boring. Okay. I'm not sure where in Scripture the church is called or commanded to entertain you. And we don't need to contrive a way to have Christ's physical body somehow present in the bread and the cup. The real presence of Christ in communion is the presence of his spirit, the third person of the Trinity, not his body, which can only be at one place at one time. In fact, since the Spirit's presence is worth Jesus' bodily absence, the whole Roman Catholic pseudo-theology of relics goes out the window. Think about that. Why do Roman Catholics love relics? Because they think it gets them close to Jesus. It's a thing that they think bears significance in its closeness to Jesus. But Jesus said his spirit's presence is worth his own body's absence. So what does that do to a relic? It makes it worthless. If Jesus said the presence of his own body is not as good for us as the indwelling of his spirit then all physical religious relics are worthless to you. And the Catholic theology of relics is bankrupt. And if worship is by this indwelling spirit, then the smells and bells of Catholicism and high Anglicanism contribute nothing to real worship. 
nor do the smoke machines and strobe lights and driving base of the megachurch model. The Spirit's presence is worth Jesus' bodily absence. And therefore, simple spiritual worship with a capital S is the only worship there is. And it's the only worship you need. The Spirit comes to convict the world, Jesus says, which is 5 through 11, by pressing home the claims of the law against the unpaid debts of sinners. That's how he does it. He brings the law to bear on the consciences of sinners. Listen again to Stephen Charnock. He says, The law lays hold of every sinner like that unforgiving servant in the gospel and with a dreadful voice claims the debt. Pay me what you owe. That is how the Spirit applies the law. The law comes to you and says, Hey, 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 you're not doing it. You're not doing it. You're not doing any of it. You're doing it some of it, but you're not doing any of it the right way. You're not doing it all the way, right away, with a happy heart. You're not doing it all the time. You don't do that. You don't do it, do you? Hey, pay what you owe. Start doing it. That's what the law says to you. Do this and live. And then, if you have heard that all your life, and you've never heard that message, and you're like, I'm, I'm, I'm okay, I'm okay. Well, the Spirit then comes and says, hey, wake up to the law's message. The Spirit is like a smelling salt to you. And, and it jerks you out of your spiritual sleep, and it makes you realize the law is talking to you, and it is not encouraging you. It is condemning you. And it is making you realize you need some other righteousness than your own to stand you up before God on Judgment Day. And the Spirit is the one who comes and convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Jesus convicts the world of sin, or Spirit convicts the world of sin, because it doesn't believe in Jesus. The root of sin is unbelief which we learn from Genesis 3, where Adam and Eve doubt the truth of God's word and sin as a result. Unbelief says God is either unjust in his demands, in his law. You can't possibly expect me to do that. And you can't possibly expect me to feel this way when I'm doing this for that person. Unbelief says that. Either God is unjust in his demands or insincere in his promises and warnings. He's not really going to do that. He wouldn't damn people, would he? No, he's too good for that. That's unbelief. Or that he's unreliable in his character. I can't trust him. Look at all the bad in the world. Or that he's unreal in his existence. I just, I just don't even think he exists. But even if you think he's unreal in his existence, even that, even an atheism isn't as bad as casting aspersion on his real character. I would rather you tell me that I don't exist than that I'm a liar. Unbelief says, I know better than to trust God, and I am better than to need Jesus. I know better than to trust God, and I am better than to need Jesus. Unbelief simply refuses to take God 
seriously, either in his law or in his gospel. George Smeaton said, the sin of unbelief is here described as a rejection of the proposals of reconciliation as the chief and supreme sin. You, you don't believe that God is serious when he's offered you Jesus. <laughs> I mean, un- unbelief in the law is one thing, right? Like, I, I can't believe he would expect me to do all these things. I, there's no way I can do all that. But then when he gives you the gospel and you don't believe that, you don't take him seriously. Yeah, I know that you can't do all this. And that's why I sent Jesus to do it all for you and then to take the curse for your not being able to do it. And you don't believe that. That is the root of sin. That is the ultimate sin. That's worse than any other sin you commit. That's the ground. That's the reason you commit every other sin. Because you don't believe God. This sin of unbelief, as a rejection of the proposals of reconciliation, George Smeaton says, is the supreme sin because it is a sin against the remedy. You don't believe the promise that's going to reconcile you? Well, then what else is there? You're not taking your medicine. You don't, you don't, think, the, you don't think you should take the gospel pill? You don't think the gospel pill will fix you? And that unbelief, George Smeaton says, is sinful in itself and it is preventing the remission of all other sins. Hey, look, if you don't believe in the gospel remedy, the church has nothing for you and neither does Jesus, neither does God. The Spirit alone then convinces us that our rejection of Jesus offends the Father who sent him. Hey, you can't reject Jesus You can't not take him seriously. You can't say, oh, no, he's not God's word. No, I don't really think so. No, I don't think I have enough proof. There's not enough evidence, you know, science and everything. You can't say that and then expect God to be really happy with you. And the Spirit alone can convince you of that. I can't convince you of that. I can try to persuade you. But we could change all the music in this room We could change the lighting. We could go all modern. We could go all ancient smells and bells. But if the Spirit of God doesn't move in your heart to convince you, Jesus is right. God is right about me. I've been wrong about myself and God my whole life. What was I thinking? If the Spirit doesn't convince you of those things and that Jesus really is God's Son, sent from heaven to die for your sins and to rise again, and that he is your wisdom, sanctification, and redemption, and righteousness. If the Spirit doesn't convince you of that, nothing will. The Spirit convinces, convicts the world of righteousness because Jesus goes to the Father. Now, that's an interesting connection. The Spirit convicts the world of righteousness because Jesus goes to the Father. How does that sentence work? God proves and vindicates Jesus' righteousness to the world by raising him from the dead and accepting him back at the right hand of the Father. His acceptance back to the Father shows the world that Jesus did not die for his own sin, but for the world's sins. Jesus went back to the Father. He's no longer here. He rose from the dead, ascended to God's right hand, proving, vindicating Jesus' righteousness and vindicating that I need 
his righteousness. And that his righteousness is the only one that, Jesus, that God the Father accepts. Christ's righteousness is unique. Jesus did in his righteousness what Adam should have done for us and what we should have done for ourselves but did not want to do and could not do. We don't have that kind of righteousness in ourselves. Isaiah says all our righteousness is like filthy rags, even our righteousness. So we can only access this righteous status and acceptance with the Father by the instrument of faith in Christ alone, in his death on our behalf, and in his righteousness credited to our account. And only the Spirit of God can convince you and convict you. You need that righteousness. Jesus' righteousness is the only righteousness that's right for you. The Spirit also convinces the world of judgment because the ruler of the world has been judged. Satan is decisively judged and defeated at the cross of Christ, and the Spirit's work is to glorify Christ by pointing the world to Christ's Satan-crushing person and work. The Spirit is the one who convinces, who brings all this evidence to bear, who makes Christ's case in your heart through the proclamation of the gospel, the preaching of God's word, the evangelism of God's people. Spirit does that. The point of all this for the disciples in the first century was that the Spirit would make their evangelism fruitful once Christ ascended. The Spirit's going to make the disciples' ministry count. The point for us as a local church is that the Spirit of God goes before us in our evangelism and preaching. We cannot convict anyone. We try sometimes, don't we? We talk to people like we're really trying to be the ones to convict them. I catch myself sometimes talking to my kids like this. But I can't, I can't convict my kid of sin. I can't convict you of sin. No matter how much I yell or get excited, I can't convict you. The Spirit has to convict you. We need the Spirit to convict the world around us. Our ministry is impotent. It's powerless without the Spirit. Our commission from Christ is to clarify the message of God's holiness and man's sinfulness, Christ's death as the substitute penalty for our sin, and the required response of repentance and faith. Only the Spirit can convince people of sin and righteousness and judgment. And he does that work through the proclaiming of the word that this same Spirit breathed out through the apostles and prophets. And this is why prayer for the Spirit is essential to gospel local church ministry. Because we can preach and do evangelism and send out flyers until we're blue in the face and nothing will happen. We might, we might draw a crowd we won't build a church. The Spirit has to convict. John Flavel told his congregation in the 1600s, ministers are like trumpets which make no sound if breath be not breathed into them. For want of the Spirit of God, how many thousands of souls do find the ministry to be nothing to them? If it be something to the purpose to any soul, it is the Lord who makes it so. It is the Spirit that gives the world all the the word, all the virtue it hath. He is the Lord of all saving influences. This should both humble us and encourage us. 
The Spirit's work in the world should encourage us in evangelism. He is at work out there in the hearts of sinners in your neighborhood, at your office, school, all over the Elgin and Fox Valley area. He may be at work in hearts and unbelievers even right now, right in this room. And if that's you, if you feel the Spirit convincing you, convicting you of your guilt and your pollution and your sin, of Jesus' righteousness, of judgment that's coming, I'd love to talk with you and pray with you about that. The Spirit guides the apostles into all truth. Verses 12 to 13, the truth comes later in the form of the New Testament writings. This truth is Jesus' truth given to him by the Father. Look there in verse 13. He will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. The Spirit never just does his own thing. The Spirit doesn't riff. That's what we like to think, right? Those of us who are brought up on CCM, contemporary Christian music, we like to think the Spirit is most at work in the guitar solo. Yeah. Spirit doesn't riff. He is not the maverick member of the Trinity or a spirit of nonconformity. The Spirit faithfully guided the apostles into all the truth about Jesus. The Spirit's carefulness to say only what he hears from the Father and the Son is the only reason you can trust Scripture. Because the Spirit doesn't speak on his own. He speaks what he hears from Jesus. Yes, he will disclose to the apostles what is to come. He will do that for them prophetically of the end times, but only in a way that discloses the significance of Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. That is what it will mean for the Spirit to glorify Jesus. The Spirit glorifies Jesus by unfolding the truth about Jesus to his disciples from all of Scripture and from the life of Christ. The Spirit enables the truth of his righteousness and he uncovers all the treasures. Excuse me, the Spirit establishes the truth of his righteousness and uncovers all the treasures and mysteries of wisdom and knowledge that are sealed up in Jesus. He tells you, he shows you how all Scripture points to Christ and coheres in him. The Spirit glorifies Jesus in guiding the production of Scripture to focus all of its light on Christ like a prism. And out of the prism of Christ shines the exposing light of conviction of sin, the warming light of God's love, and love for Christ's beauty and sufficiency, his mercy and majesty, his power. See here, too, a certain orderliness in the in the arrangement of it. The Father gives all things to the Son. The Spirit takes from what Jesus has and gives it to us. Our theology of the Spirit, then, has to be Christ-centered because the Spirit himself is Christ-centered. The Spirit glorifies Jesus. So the Spirit-filled people are not those who are always claiming to see the most unique spiritual visions that only God gave to them 
or to hear spiritual voices that only they hear, or dream up spiritual dreams which only they see, or have spiritual experiences that only they have. Who does that glorify? Not Jesus. It makes the person look unique. What if I got up here week after week after week, and I kept on telling you these dreams that God gave me, or this voice that I heard? And I kept on telling you, you know what I think that means for us? I think it means this. What would you think of me then? You would either think way too much of me, or you would leave the church. It would either be deceiving to you, or it would be nauseating to you. It's not faithful. The most spirit-filled people are those who testify to Jesus in a way that glorifies Jesus in his truth and holiness because the Spirit himself glorifies Jesus. That's his job. And the Spirit is the Spirit of truth, and he is the Holy Spirit. So the way you discern which spirit it is that's in you, making you think or feel a certain way, is to ask if that spirit is glorifying Jesus' truth and holiness or is it pandering to you and to what you want to think about yourself as a spiritual person. Even the apostles needed the Spirit's ministry to see and preach Jesus effectively. So friends, how much more do we need to pray for the Spirit's blessing, his insight, his power. <clears throat> Second, Jesus' departure increases our joy. It increases our joy. It doesn't just enable the Spirit's arrival. It increases our joy. And this is ironic. Jesus gives him a little riddle. A little while and you will see me no longer, and again a little while, and you will see me. And the disciples have no idea what he's talking about. I, mean, they kind of, I think they kind of try to convince Jesus that they do, because they don't ask him about it. They, they just ask each other. They're like, <laughs> what is he talking about? Do you feel sometimes that way? In spiritual conversations with people who know more about the Bible than you do? What is he talking about? <laughs> And even we're a little confused about what Jesus means here. Does he mean they'll see him three days from now at his resurrection? Does he mean they're going to see him when he returns at his second advent? Even commentators are confused about this. It's probably enough to say here that we are not the best interpreters of God's dark providences when he tells them to us. The disciples had no category for Jesus leaving them physically. That was not part of the program for the disciples. When they started following Jesus, they did not expect to stop following him physically. They do not get this. They have no way of understanding why he might need to leave. Why that would be better for them than if he had stayed. What's he mean? We ourselves are prone to misunderstand Jesus, aren't we? I mean, we can put ourselves easily in the disciples' shoes here. Even when he's making us wonderful promises. I mean, he's making a wonderful promise, right? A little while, you're not going to see me, but a little while again, and you will. 
It's a wonderful promise. And they're like, uh, what? This is totally lost on them. Okay, I guess. Where are you going? I mean, they don't even ask him that. He's telling them in veiled language that he's going to die for their sins, rise again from the dead, and ascend to heaven to pour out his spirit into their hearts. Yet all they feel is sorrow and confusion and abandonment. So Jesus addresses their sorrow and tells them he's going to turn it to joy sooner than they think. And the picture he uses in verses 21 to 22 is a woman giving birth. She has great pain and sorrow in childbirth, but once she's holding her baby, the sorrow turns to joy that makes her forget all that pain. Whether Jesus is talking only about his resurrection appearances or also about his return, the sorrow they feel now over the prospect of losing Jesus isn't going to last forever. But the picture is more than an illustration The childbirth idea is a new creation idea. Their joy in Jesus' departure is going to be the joy of the new creation inaugurated in Jesus' resurrection as the firstborn of that new creation. That new creation, once begun, is going to be completed. And that is why no one will take your joy from you. The joy of the new creation has already begun. It's already in motion. There's no stopping now. There's no going back. Those who have faith in Christ are united to Christ, both in his death and in his resurrection. He had to be raised first. He had to be accepted at God's right hand first. He had to send the Spirit first. He had to unite us to him first. Only then could our joy be full, permanent, and eternal with him in the heavenly places. But all of this implies that he had to die. Herman Ritterboss was right when he said of the childbirth metaphor, Without this sorrow, the sorrow of Jesus' death, the birth pangs of the new creation, without this sorrow, no joy is possible. And the joy is brought forth, as it were, by the sorrow. There is no birth without birth pangs. There is no resurrection without the death of Jesus. There is no outpouring of the Spirit without the absence of Jesus. Our new birth is rooted in the power of Jesus' bodily resurrection from the dead, ascension to heaven, and outpouring of his Spirit into our hearts. The new creation started with Jesus' resurrection and ascension, and that is how his departure increases our joy. Jesus' departure in his resurrection and ascension inaugurated the whole new creation. I'm a new man in Christ because Jesus ascended and sent his spirit into our hearts. That is joy inexpressible and full of glory. And it happens precisely because Jesus is physically absent from us. Verse 23, Jesus' resurrection clarifies the significance of his death for his disciples. Once he's raised, they're no longer going to ask the kind of questions they ask in the Gospels. From our perspective, we read through the Gospels and we're like, boy, these guys are not really the sharpest tools in the shed, are they? They ask a lot of kind of funny questions. Like, why are you even asking that? I know not to ask that. You know, you feel like if you were there, you'd be like, Peter, stop it. You're being awkward. Kind of dumb. 
This idea of not questioning Jesus about anything in that day, the time of his resurrection and ascension, fulfills Jeremiah 31. They will not teach again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, but they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. Their weeping turns to joy when they understand the saving significance of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and not before. And this is the same joy we experience now by the teaching of the, of the Spirit as we read his word. But in verse 24, just because the resurrection clarifies our confusion doesn't mean we quit praying. It's the opposite. Yes, we don't have to ask the kinds of questions the disciples asked before Jesus rose from the dead, but Jesus' resurrection sets up an asking and receiving relationship between us and the Father based on our relationship with Jesus as our mediator. The disciples had still not asked anything from God based on Jesus' name, his role as their mediator and savior. Now, Jesus says, now that Jesus is on the brink of his death and resurrection, the hour has come for them to treat him as the mediator he came to be, in their prayers to God because he is about to offer his own blood as high priest and sacrifice all in one. The privilege of faith in Christ is the assurance that we have what we ask of the Father when we ask it according to Christ's character, purposes, and ways. Answered prayer makes our joy full and it confirms that we do indeed have this asking receiving relationship with the Father himself. Jesus wants that for you, for us. And that is partly why we get together on Sunday nights to see God make our joy full by seeing him answer our prayers as we ask them according to the character and priorities of Jesus. I mean, why else would God want us to pray? Why else would God want us to pray? God's sovereign. God doesn't need your prayer. Why does he want you to pray? He wants it for you, Christian. Prayer changes you. Prayer draws you close to him. God invites that from you, from us. Prayer is for our joy so that we might have what we ask of the Father in the name of Jesus. Prayer is so that we get to experience an asking, receiving relationship with the Heavenly Father. We have that great privilege, again, precisely because Jesus is physically absent from us at God's right hand. Verses 25 to 28, when our faith is in Jesus' blood and righteousness, not in our own sacrifices or contributions, then even though the world hates us, even though the world hates us, the Father loves us. And when that is true of you by faith in Jesus, then you learn to ask nothing from this world because you have this asking and receiving relationship with the Father who loves you. We ask far too much of this world and far too little 
from our Father in heaven. As soon as Jesus is raised from the dead, the figure of speech goes out the window. They'll know what he means by the anguish of a woman in labor giving way to the joy of new motherhood. They won't need that image anymore because they'll know that the sorrow of Jesus' death was necessary for the joy of his, of his resurrection and for the joy of our asking and receiving relationship with the Father. Third, Jesus' departure solidifies our confidence. Solidifies our confidence in verses 29 to 33. Third and final point. Jesus would teach them even more clearly after his resurrection on the road to Emmaus and then after his return to the Father through the revealing and reminding ministry of the Holy Spirit as he breathed out scripture in the New Testament through the apostles. The clarity of that revelation provided the apostles with an unshakable confidence And we share that confidence today, not because we're apostles, but because we have their word that the Spirit inspired through them. The Spirit continues to help us understand God's word and all the glories of who God is for us in Christ. And the more the Spirit teaches us of Christ and his word, the more confident we become of his truth and of his love, and the greater our joy becomes. Jesus indicates that we will ask the Father directly on the basis of Jesus' name. So this confidence is rooted in the clarity of the Spirit's ministry in breathing out the Word of God through the apostles and clarifying it to us as we read it and hear it. This confidence is also rooted in the Father's love. Jesus says we're going to ask the Father directly, and the Father's going to respond directly because he loves us. He loves us because we love and believe in Jesus. That doesn't mean that he foresaw our faith and loved us on that basis. In John 16, John wants us to understand that the Father loves us because the Father loves Christ and we are united with Christ by faith. But the Father himself is the one who sent Christ for us and united us to Christ in the first place. The Father gave us to the Son as a gift to the Son and he gave the Son to us all because the Father loves the Son. What this means for our prayer lives is that we have the heart of the Heavenly Father as soon as we have placed before Him the name of His Son. As soon as you speak Jesus' name as the basis for your prayer, the Father's heart is endeared to you. Any father knows this. Any uncle knows this. You look at your niece or nephew or your son or your daughter, and they look up at you, and they ask you for something, no matter how trivial it is, no matter how much you don't feel like getting up and getting it for them, can I have some milk, can I have some milk, can I have some milk? You want to get it for him because it's the relationship that's tugging at your heart. They're looking to you. And when we look to Christ, we place Christ in front of the Father 
is the reason we want something. The father says, ah, okay, I'll hear you. I'll listen to that. I've got time for that. I can care for that. The Father himself loves you. Father doesn't need to be coerced by the Son to love us or to answer our prayers. The Son's mediating ministry for us in heaven is not begging a still angry God to bless us against his better judgment or to be kind to us against his will. It was the Father's love that sent the Son into the world in the first place. The Father turned his own favor toward us by redirecting his wrath over our sin towards his own Son. The Father did that on his own. That was the Father's idea from the start. So, poor soul, if you are turning from your sin and trusting in Jesus, imperfectly as it may be, then the Father himself loves you. You have Jesus' word on it. Jesus assures his disciples, verse 28, that his departure should not shake their confidence in him. I came forth from the Father, and I go to the Father. Even through his own death and resurrection, Jesus Christ remains the same, yesterday, today, and forever. It's I who came, and it's I who go. He is sovereign still, and as one theologian put it, none of those blessings which he brought are lost by his departure because from his heavenly glory, he sheds on the world the power and efficacy of his death and resurrection. His grace to us is still in all its force because he is seated at the right hand of the Father that he may sway the scepter of the whole world. And that leads us to our final observation, that our confidence is rooted in Jesus' victory over the world. The disciples run ahead of Jesus in verse 29, 30, 31, 32, thinking that it was already the time of clarity when in fact it wasn't. Oh, now you're speaking to us clearly. Oh, we get it now. They affirm their faith in his omniscience, his divinity, but Jesus knows that even though their faith is genuine, it's still wobbly. Within a few short hours, they're going to all abandon him. So, Christian, look how easy it is to overestimate your own gospel knowledge, maturity, and strength and endurance. But Jesus has said all that he said this night in order that his disciples might have peace. He wants us to have peace even in the midst of the world that makes us suffer for loyal obedience to Jesus. And think about this. He wants his first disciples to have peace even though he's just told them, you're going to all betray me. You're going to all abandon me. But that's okay. I want you to have peace through that. And Jesus wants that peace for us, even in his physical absence. The only way we can have peace that transcends this troubled world is if our peace is grounded in the one who has overcome the world. Humanity in rebellion against God. Jesus says, take courage, I have overcome the world. He has overcome humanity in rebellion against God by living sinlessly, dying under the curse that our sins deserved, and then being vindicated in his resurrection. Jesus has overcome 
the world. He rose above the world's hatred by dying to it and proving that it was without cause. He rose above the world's unbelief by his trust in God. He rose above the world's self-righteousness by suffering for his righteousness. And he rose above the world's judgment of him by entrusting himself to the one who judges justly, even while they were judging him. And now Jesus had shared his victory with all those who love and trust him. John wrote to the churches, 1 John 5, 4, This is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. Our faith in this Jesus who overcame the world in his bodily death and resurrection. So Paul said, Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, he who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all the day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we, we overwhelmingly conquer. Same verb as in John 16. How? Through him who loved us. The victory of the cross foreshadows the victory of the Lamb in final judgment. Uniquely Christian confidence, then, is not rooted in self or in the strength as the world conceives it or even in the spiritual gifts that God may give you, but rather in the victory of Jesus Christ on the cross as the guarantee of his victory over all evil for his glory and for our good. So young people, listen to me. You cannot build your confidence on your ability to win at life. I know you want to win at life. We all want to win at life. We all want to pick a job where we can compete and win. I get it. But you can't build your confidence on that, on how you look compared to other people or your skill at sports or your academic accomplishments or your earning potential or what other people may say about you on social media. Your confidence is not built on where you can win the competition of life. That only leaves you with anxiety and anger. Or, if you're winning, it leaves you with arrogance and selfishness. And God hates that. Your confidence is best built then on the fact that Jesus has overcome the world for you. He has overcome the world and all that is in it. The hatred of Jesus, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, and rebellion against God. Jesus overcame all of that by dying to it and rising again from it. And if your faith is in Jesus, then his victory over the world is yours already. That's what we want for you, young man. That's what we want for you, young woman. You don't have to look like all the girls you think are prettier than you. You don't have to be as good at basketball or football as your buddy is. 
You don't have to wear all the cool clothes or get everyone's attention and approval because of all your successes. You don't have to put this, you don't have to be the scholarship student with a hotshot career. Jesus died to all of that on the cross. Putting your faith in Jesus means you die to all that too as a source of confidence, as a reason for being. And you rise above it to a peace and joy with Jesus that the world cannot ruin. Jesus will free you to be who you are in him so that you are not a slave to wishing you were someone you're not. Jesus will make you what he wants you to be in him. And he is enough. And besides, there are countless beautiful, athletic, successful, smart, respected people from this world who have already woken up in hell in the world to come. Because they did not trust that Christ overcame the world, and so the world overcame them with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Christian, you see here how your confidence is not even in your faithfulness to Jesus. The disciples make their most confident assertion of knowledge and faith just hours before they were to abandon Jesus with a warning from Jesus himself that that would be the case. But Jesus did not abandon them. He overcame the world for them so that they could overcome the world in and through him. Christian, the confidence to overcome whatever cowardice remains in you is in Jesus' faithfulness to you through what frightens you. So where are you tempted to be cowardly? In evangelism at work or in your neighborhood? Maybe in obedience to Christ in your finances or in your family? Be courageous for the cause of Jesus and for obedience to him even in the midst of trials Why? Because Jesus has overcome the world. He has won the decisive battle with sin and hatred of God on the cross, and the war is his for the taking, and he will take it. He's broken the world's power to intimidate you into silence about your faith at work or at school and in your neighborhood so you can have courage to die with and even for Jesus if it ever comes to that. Where are you tempted to be joyless and faithless? Maybe it's a long struggle with a besetting sin, or an extended stretch of sickness, or a season of relational difficulties with your spouse or your children. Take courage. Jesus has overcome the world's hold on your heart. Jesus has resurrection power to overcome every heartbreaking, soul-killing influence of the world's war on God. Or maybe you're just weary of this world altogether this morning. Maybe you're just tired of it. 
Maybe you're an older, tired traveler on your way to the New Jerusalem. You're tired of this world. Take heart. Jesus Christ has overcome this world for you, and you are on your way to a better country, a heavenly one. God has prepared a city for you there, a city with eternal foundations whose architect and builder is God. As ironic as it may seem, Jesus' physical absence from us is best for us for now. His departure releases his spirit to us. It increases our joy in prayer to the Father and a giving and receiving relationship, asking and receiving relationship with him, and it solidifies our confidence in the clarity of the gospel and the Father's love for us. It's not that we don't still have hardships, but in the midst of a world that gives us a hard time for our faith in Jesus, we take heart together because Jesus has overcome the world. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful that you have sent Christ has lived the life we should have lived, died the death we should have died, risen from the dead. You have united us to him by faith. And he has shed abroad his spirit into the hearts of all who trust in him. And he is still today convicting the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. So, Lord, would you cause your spirit to be shed abroad in a more powerful way in our hearts and in this church, other churches like it, that Jesus' name would be known and honored. Lord, increase our joy in our asking and receiving relationship with you. May our confidence be grounded in your truth, in your mercy, in your love. For Jesus' sake, amen.